This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. This episode contains explicit language. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for our continued series, Killer Kids. This is Chapter 2, Mary Bell. Mary Flora Bell was born May 26, 1957. She lived in Northeast England in Newcastle upon Tyne. Her neighborhood was called Scottswood. The area where the Bells lived had not changed a whole lot since the war. It was quite a blighted area with many abandoned and crumbling buildings. Scottswood's children often played in the rubble unsupervised. This scenario is reminiscent of the type of environment young Jesse Pomeroy lived in way back in the late 1800s that I outlined in episode 5. There was a high number of petty crimes and public drunkenness attributed to the local population in Scottswood. Derelicts lived in the abandoned buildings that dotted the neighborhood. Mary, who was called May by her family, was 11 years old in the summer of 1968. Mary lived with her mother Betty and her stepfather Billy Bell, who married Betty when Mary was only a baby. Mary's father was never in her life, and there is even some dispute as to his name, either Jimmy or Johnny. Betty was only 17 years old when she gave birth to Mary. Take this thing away from me, Betty was reported as saying when the newborn was placed into her arms for the first time. Mary's mother was often gone. She had a history of being flaky and unable to take care of her now two children. Mary's brother was born before Mary was two years old. Mary and her brother were often left with either her stepfather, Billy, or her maternal grandmother. Her aunt, Kath, and Uncle Jack her uncles Issa, Audrey, and Margaret, and her uncle Philip. They all loved Mary and doted on the beautiful little girl with the dark pixie haircut and the striking blue eyes. While Billy Bell was said to have been a decent man from a respectable family when he met Betty, and that he was always turned out or sharply dressed and handsome, by the time Mary was 11 years old, he was well known to police as a drunkard and a petty criminal. Betty was now attending the Delavelle Road Junior School. She was often seen with her friend and next-door neighbor, Norma Bell, who was no relation to her. Norma, at 13 years old, was two years Mary's senior, but often acted like the younger of the two. She was called simple by her family and teachers alike, and probably was either mildly retarded or learning disabled in some way. In the late 1990s, the BBC aired a documentary on the Mary Bell case. In it, her now-adult-aged schoolmates recounted that many of the children were afraid of Mary. She was very aggressive and often acted out violently upon them when she was angry. She had choked children who had angered her and even stubbed out a cigarette on one child's cheek. She admitted to this stating that the child had made her angry. On Saturday, May 11, 1968, a three-year-old boy was seen with Mary and Norma. It is believed that they promised to take him to buy some sweets. Later that afternoon, he was found wandered, dazed and bleeding. He was unable to tell anyone what had happened. The next day, a mother complained to a police officer that Mary had choked her young daughter while they had been playing together in the sand pit. The police officer took the complaint, but nothing further was done. He probably assumed it was just children having a playground spat. One of Mary's schoolmates, Pauline, recalled very vividly, 30 years later, her encounter with Mary. Norma pinned us down, and Mary had grabbed us by the neck and start like strangling us and then she was, had a hand here and she was getting the sand 
and then pouring at my mouth. And I couldn't go in quick enough and she's trying to stuff her fingers down, basically, to get it further down. And obviously I was terrified. And I think Norma was a little bit frightened when she seen what Mary was doing, because Norma jumped up. And by that time, she had jumped up and I managed to struggle and get free and run home. After the attack on Pauline, the police were called, but no further action was taken. Little Pauline had not told the full story. I was terrified of telling the police everything. I know I didn't tell them everything. I know I told them I'd been, like, strangled. But I didn't mention the sound, because I was frightened. I was frightened of that effects case she got a hold of us afterwards. And it haunts us. Two weeks later, on Saturday, May 25th, a four-year-old Scotswood boy, Martin Brown, was found upstairs in an abandoned building by three young boys looking for scrap wood. He was lying on his back with his arms outstretched, and blood and saliva was coming out of his mouth. The boys recognized him immediately. Electricians had been working on the house and were outside having their tea when the boys rushed out of the house for help. At the same time, while the police were still on the way to the scene, Mary knocked on the door of Rita Finley, Martin's aunt, who lived just a few buildings down from where Martin was found. She reported calmly that one of Rita's bairns, or children, had had an accident. Rita couldn't guess what Mary was referring to and told her she must be mistaken. Mary insisted that she come with her to see. Rita then saw a woman in the street frantically waving to her and ran toward the crowd she saw forming down the street. Mary was right beside her, pulling her along to show her the way. Rita pushed her aside when she saw a small child in the arms of a man at the top of the stairs. Martin was taken by ambulance to the hospital, but there was no signs of life in the little boy and he was pronounced dead soon after arrival. Police investigated the scene and were stumped since there was no marks or other obvious signs of trauma on the boy. They looked to see if he could have fallen from somewhere, but there was nothing to indicate a fatal fall. Some pill bottles were found on the floor, so they thought perhaps he had taken some pills or medication that he'd found that had killed him. The medical examiner didn't find much to go on either. The boy seemed fit and healthy, no bruises beyond a trivial knee scrape. His clothing was not torn, and there were no broken bones. He did a test to determine if there were any type of poisoning, but no drugs or chemicals were found in Martin's system. He did wonder about asphyxia since there was a slight swelling to the brain, but the most obvious clue, marks on the neck, nose, or mouth, were not observed. His death was ruled an accident and no criminal investigation was brought into the case. His mother, June, was later questioned about her son, and she said she couldn't believe that he had gone up the stairs in the abandoned building on his own as he was terrified of stairs and heights. The papers then speculated that he had perhaps died of fright. They said that he might have gone upstairs to explore and then was too frightened to go back stairs and instead suffered a shock at being trapped alone. The day after Martin died, Mary with Norma in tow showed up again back at Martin's aunt's house. Rita reports that they asked her if they could help her by taking her little boy John out to play. She thought they were being nice, realizing that she was grieving for Martin and struggling to care for four children of her own. She told them that they could as long as they made sure he didn't get dirty. They came back every day for a while to take him to play or to the shops, but they kept asking her questions every time they saw her, like, Do you miss Martin? Do you cry for him? Does June miss him? 
Rita couldn't stand these types of questions anymore, and even more so because they always seemed to be accompanied by Mary or Norma grinning at her. She finally told them to leave and not come back. She thought that because they were young, they didn't quite understand about death and why their curiosity might be inappropriate. But still, it chilled her to see their cold demeanor about the death of her little nephew. On Monday, teachers arrived at the local nursery school to find that it had been broken into over the weekend. There was some general vandalism with school supplies and cleaning materials scattered around the room. Among the scattered items, police found four pieces of paper with childish scribbling on them. The first one read, I murder so that I may come back. Note two read in part, We murder, watch out, Fanny and Faggot. Note three said, We did murder Martin Brown. Fuck off, you bastard. Note four was almost undecipherable. It read, You are micey because we murdered Martin Go Brown. You better look out, there are murders about by Fanny and Faggot, you screws. The police determined that it was just a nasty prank pulled by some children, possibly reacting to the shock of Martin's reported death. On that same morning, Mary Bell was in class. One of the class assignments each week was to write in a notebook or a newsbook and record a current event or interesting observation that they might have noticed. Mary that day wrote, On Saturday, I was in the house and my ma'am asked me to ask Norma if she would come up the top with me. We went up and we came down at Margaret's Road, and there were crowds of people beside an old house. I asked what was the matter. There has been a boy who just lay down and died. At the bottom of the page, Mary drew a picture that showed an outstretched body lying on the ground under a window. Next to the body is a bottle, and above it the word tablet is written. Drawn next to the boy is a depiction of a workman with a cap on his head and a tool slung over his shoulder. This entry, although not noted upon at the time, would be significant later on. Four days after Martin was found, Mary Bell knocked on the door of Martin's family's house. When his mother opened the door, Mary smiled and asked to see Martin. June answered, No, pet, Martin is dead. Mary replied, Oh, I know he's dead. I wanted to see him in his coffin. She was still smiling. June slammed the door on her. On Friday of that same week, the security alarm that had been installed at the previously broken-in nursery school went off. Police arrived to find Mary and Norma in the play yard of the nursery. They had gained entry the same way as the previous break-in. They were questioned, charged with breaking and entering, and returned to their parents until the case could be heard in juvenile court some time later. Rita Finley's young son, John, who Mary and Norma used to come and play with, was best friends with three-year-old Brian Howe. On Wednesday, July 31st, John and Brian went out to play. Around lunchtime, Rita went to find the boys to bring John home for lunch. She found them at the construction site where an old building was being torn down. They were watching the demolition. Rita grabbed both of them, scolding them for being in a dangerous area and giving them each a spank on their bottom. She took them to her house and gave Brian a biscuit before sending him home for his lunch. She then gave John his lunch and put him to bed for a nap. A while later, Norma and Mary knocked on the door of Rita's house. Norma asked after John, saying, Where's my boyfriend? She always wanted to play with little John, and today Rita told her that John was down for his nap. The girls then left. 
Later, Rita would observe that if he had not been napping, she might have let him go with the girls, and it would have been him they took off. It is probable that after leaving Rita's house, Mary and Norma had come across Brian. Other children later reported that he had been playing in the street with some other children who were riding bikes. Mary and Norma, it is believed, asked Brian to come with them to play in a field known by the locals as the Tin Lizzie. The Tin Lizzie was about 500 yards of waste ground that was filled with oil drums, building materials, concrete blocks, and the like, that the children sometimes used as a playground. Brian's stepsister, Pat, went out looking for him after arriving home that afternoon. She began asking the neighbors if they'd seen Brian. Mary Bell was sitting on a stoop with Pat's neighbor. Are you going to look for your Brian, Mary asked. When Pat said she was, Mary offered to go with her. Norma also joined them soon after. It was about 4 p.m. They passed over the railway bridge where they could look down into the tin Lizzie, and Mary observed that Brian might be playing among the concrete blocks. Norma quickly disagreed. Oh no, she said, he never goes there. Pat agreed. Norma quickly split off to go home, and after a bit more searching, Mary's father called her for dinner, and she headed towards home. It was now 7.30 p.m. As the day turned into night, people were becoming more concerned about Brian, and the neighbors began to search in earnest. Brian was found around 11 p.m., lying between two concrete blocks on the tin Lizzie. He was stretched out on his back. Some grass had been hastily placed over him as to conceal his body. There were scratch marks on his neck and face, some bloody froth at his mouth, and there were compression marks on his nose. There was a pair of scissors lying next to his body. One blade was broken and the other was bent back. His lips were blue. He had most likely been dead for several hours. The postmortem examination would reveal other injuries. There were puncture wounds on his thighs and his legs. The compression wounds on his nose suggested that someone had pinched his nose together on both sides. The pathologist determined that Brian had been killed by strangulation and that it would take very little pressure to do so for a child of this size. He believed that the killer had to be another child since an adult usually would exert much more pressure and would cause more bruising or wounds. Also, the cut marks on the child seemed to be somewhat superficial. Not much force was exerted there as well. The time of death was determined to be between 1.30 and 5.30 p.m., but more likely between 3.30 and 4.30 the previous afternoon. The chief inspector also noticed the similarities in Brian's murder and the death of Martin Brown and decided to reopen that investigation. He concluded that there was no doubt whatsoever that another child had been responsible for Brian's murder. But who, he would ask himself, and why? Mary's mother, Betty, by all accounts, came from a close and loving family. Betty was doted on by her parents and siblings alike. Everyone notes what a pretty child Betty was. She sometimes exhibited odd behavior, but because she was so loved, her family mostly indulged her whims, passing them off as only a childish phase. For example, when Betty was about five years old, she began to refuse to eat. Her family bribed, begged, and pleaded with her to eat her food, and finally she relented, but only if her mother put her food in a corner for her behind a chair. She would hide herself away to eat. Later, she outgrew eating in corners on the floor, but would only eat if the family pretended not to see her eat or if she could pretend to steal food. Betty was her father's favorite, and she dearly loved him in return. Sadly, he died when she was just 14 years old. <laughs> 
After his death, Betty seemed to change for the worse. She would refuse to go to Sunday school, became wild, staying out late and not coming home sometimes until early in the morning. She was punished for these behaviors, but nothing changed. It was about that time that she began to steal, too, from family members and then from the shops where she would get part-time jobs. Betty was a beauty as a young woman. She even won several local beauty pageants. She had long, shining black hair, big blue eyes, a slim figure, and long legs. When she was 15, she fell in love with a boy who it was believed was Mary's father. As previously mentioned, she became pregnant and gave birth to Mary at age 17. Mary's early life seemed to be marked by a series of accidents that almost ended her life before it had begun. Soon after Betty married Billy, she became pregnant with her second child. Mary was only one year old. The young couple was living with Betty's mom, who took pills for her nerves. She locked them away carefully in the back of a used needle compartment of an old gramophone. Somehow, the infant was able to get to this hiding place without anyone taking notice, unscrew the bottle open, and eat several of the bad-tasting pills. Luckily, she was found in time and rushed to the hospital where her stomach was pumped. Very soon after her new marriage had begun, Betty began to leave Billy with the two children, two-year-old Mary and their six-month-old son, and go off on her own. She would leave a note saying she couldn't cope with two children and just leave for days. Even before this, however, she would often leave with Mary and drop her off with various friends and relatives before disappearing once again. It was at this time that, it is reported, Betty began to prostitute herself for attention and for financial gain. Mary also began to show signs of disturbance. Relatives report that she could not tolerate being held, hugged, or kissed, but would push them away and refuse to accept their affection. Mary was often foisted off on her Aunt Kath and Uncle Jack, who loved her dearly. They say she spent more time with them than her mother or anyone else in her early years. They offered to adopt Mary, but upon receiving this message, Betty quickly swooped in and grabbed up Mary, saying she would never agree to give her child away. Two weeks later, she dropped Mary off with Kath and Jack again and would continue to do so over the years. Betty seemed to be in need of constant attention from men and others. She often related many stories that her family would come to find out were pure fiction. When Mary was two and a half years old, Betty arrived at Kath's house distraught. She said that Mary had been in a terrible accident, that a truck had driven over her and she was in the hospital. Kath now lived about an hour away from Newcastle, and while she wondered why Betty had come to her house instead of staying at the hospital with her daughter, she was so upset that she didn't question her. Kath, not having a phone, quickly decided to go to Mary first thing in the morning. Before she could, however, a letter arrived from Betty saying that the story wasn't true, that Mary was not in the hospital, but that Betty had given her to another family, friends of Kath who had wanted to adopt Mary for some time. Kath then rushed the 10 miles to her friend's home, not knowing what to believe. She then discovered that Betty hadn't actually given Mary to them, but had only asked them to keep Mary for a couple of weeks while she sorted some things out. Betty returned for Mary a few days later. One day, when Betty was visiting Kath and her family, Kath entered the sitting room to find Betty and her younger brother eating little blue pills called Drinamils. It was an antidepressant containing amphetamine and a barbiturate that were quite popularly prescribed in the 1960s. Kath shouted for Betty, who simply stated they must have gotten them from her purse. 
Kath and Jack quickly induced vomiting in the children and rushed them to the hospital where they were checked out and sent home. When Mary was three and a half, Betty took her away once again to her mother's house in Glasgow. She then lived in a third-story flat with a terrace. Betty's siblings, Isa and Philip, were there that day. Betty was holding Mary over a sink next to an open window. Philip glanced over to see Mary falling out of the window. He ran across the room and somehow managed to grab her by the ankles before she tumbled out and down three stories. Betty's family was now very worried about Mary's safety, and her mother instructed Isa and Philip not to let her out of their sight. Finally, when Mary was four years old and Betty was back living with Billy, Kath received an urgent message that Mary was in the hospital. She had once again ingested pills, but now Mary was old enough to talk about the incident. Before Kath even got into the hospital room, Betty was outside saying, Don't believe her. She says I gave her the pills. As soon as she had awoken from this poisoning, she began to immediately tell the doctors, Me ma'am gave me the Smarties, and kept repeating it over for the next several days. Once is an accident, one of her sisters said to Betty, but three and now even four times is impossible. By the time Mary was school-aged, she was well-known to her teachers and administrators as a beautiful but rebellious child. They found her smart and amusing, but trying. She would sometimes lie under her desk, still as a board, and refuse to come out. She would punch, pitch, kick, and hit the other children in the schoolyard, and then be upset when none of the children wanted to play with her. She would tell tall tales, and her lies would be very inventive. She was a particularly clever child. She was also called cunning and crafty by her teachers. She seemed to crave attention, and when she couldn't get it by being good, seemed to go out of her way to be naughty. The investigation into the murder of little Brian Howe began, and the acting chief constable held several press conferences to keep the public informed. Parents were understandably panicked and wanted answers quickly. At every press conference, the constable noticed one face front and center every time, that of Mary Bell. The investigators created questionnaires that were then distributed to the children of Scottswood and the neighboring vicinities, inquiring about any information they might have about Brian Howe, where he was that day, who he played with, if he was seen with anyone else, etc. Over 1,200 questionnaires were sent to children between the ages of 3 and 15 to have their parents help them complete. Any questionnaire that came back with any promising information was followed up on. They also followed up on those that came back with a question mark, either inconsistent statements or unclear answers. A few of the children's answers were followed up with several times, including Norma's and Mary's. On August 1st, the constable visited Norma's house for follow-up questions. He found a nice, tidy home and a warm and supportive family unit. He thought Norma's demeanor odd, however. Any question that was put to her was answered with a big grin on her face, as if it was all a big joke. Most children, when questioned, either seemed anxious, fearful, or at least serious. Norma mentioned being with Mary Bell at the critical time in question, between 3.30 and 4.30 on July 31st. So after concluding with Norma, they went next door to question Mary. At first, Billy Bell would not let them in. They quickly explained that if he didn't, they could compel him to bring Mary down to police headquarters to have her questioned there. When they were finally allowed entry, they found a much different environment from the home they just visited. Mary's house was peculiar, they remarked. It didn't seem like much of a home, nothing warm or inviting, but just a cold shell of a room. When asked if he was Mary's father, 
Billy Bell, as he often did, for reasons no one could guess, stated that he was not, but only her uncle. He said she only had a mother and she was away on business. After questioning Mary, the investigators remarked that she was the most evasive child they had ever come across. Instead of answering a question directly, she would often say yes and then no, or the other way around, and then go into a long-winded explanation that had nothing to do with the question that was put to her until by the end, the investigators themselves became confused. The next day, the investigators returned to question Mary further. Because of her evasive answers, they thought that she might have seen something or know something that she was not saying. At this time, Mary said she remembered something. She said that she had seen Brian that day with a local boy, and she named the boy. She also said that she had seen this boy hit Brian around the face and neck. She continued by saying she had seen him playing with some scissors, and there was something wrong with the scissors, like one leg was either broken or bent. The scissors that had been found near Brian's body that were bent in the way Mary described had not been photographed or described by any of the newspapers. Now the investigators were very interested in Miss Mary Bell. Mary and Norma had changed their stories twice. When investigators went back to Norma and told her that they pretty much knew she had information about Brian Howe, she cracked. She began to cry and then told a story that implicated Mary in the killing of Brian. She said that Mary had taken her out to the Tin Lizzie, and that is when she saw Brian lying dead in the grass. And Mary said, I squeezed his neck and pushed up his lungs. That's how you kill them. Keep your nose dry and don't tell anyone. They had her take them to the spot where she had seen Brian and describe how he was positioned. At that point, they knew that she was telling them the truth about seeing Brian there. That evening, the investigators went to visit Mary Bell to take her to the station and conduct a formal inquiry. They woke her up, but said she seemed relaxed and confident as she accompanied them. A child psychologist was brought in to be present while Mary was questioned. She denied knowing anything about how Brian was killed, only saying that she knew he had died because she was one of the people who had been looking for him when he went missing. When she became tripped up during one of the line of questions about what she was wearing that day and that they had reason to believe a man had seen her playing in the tin Lizzie at the time, she abruptly stood up and said she was going home. Up until then, she had seemed confident, almost like she was playing a game with the detectives that she was winning. When the chief inspector told her that she could not go home yet, she said, I'll phone for some solicitors. They'll get me out. This is being brainwashed. Quite a confident 11-year-old in the face of what should be an extremely frightening and stressful situation. The investigators were taken aback by her attitude. Later that day, Mary changed her story. Now she said she had seen Brian in the Tin Lizzie, but pointed the finger at Norma. Now knowing that both girls were probably involved, the chief inspector brought up the question of Martin Brown. He said he suspected that her and Norma were responsible for the break-in in the nursery and the I murdered notes found there. She quickly confessed to it, but denied knowing anything about Martin and only wrote the notes, she said, for a giggle. At 8 p.m. that evening, Mary was charged with the murder of Brian Edward Howe. She answered, that's all right with me. Norma was also charged with the murder. Norma's reaction was to say, I never, you know and burst into tears. Mary and Norma's trial began on December 5, 1968. There had been some debate as to where to house the two girls until the trial. 
For the first couple of nights after their arrest, they had been housed in the Newcastle West End Police Station in a room set up for juvenile offenders. They were then sent to two different remand homes, homes set up by the welfare agency that served the needs of children who had no homes or families to go to. An adult jail would not be appropriate, and yet they needed a secure place to house these young girls charged with murder, something that had never been encountered before. So each girl was assigned a series of police women around the clock to supervise them. Mary's only concern at first was, as she stated, I hope me mum won't have to pay a fine. In the time between their arrest for the murder of Brian Howe, the investigation had been reopened into the death of Martin Brown. It was determined to be a homicide, and Mary and Norma were also charged with his murder. When the trial began, the girls were moved closer to the court. Mary stayed at the Fernwood Reception Center, and Norma continued to stay in a state mental hospital. Soon after her arrest, Norma's attorney asked for bail to be granted in order for her to be sent to a mental hospital for evaluation. This was granted, and Norma was then transferred to the Prudhoe Moncton Mental Hospital that was located five miles from Newcastle. When the trial began, Mary's family, including her mother, who had come back from Glasgow, was in attendance, along with Mary's grandmother, Billy Bell, and his sister. Norma's parents were also present. The evidence was quickly presented. The scissors found near the body and Mary's description of them, Norma's knowledge of the location and position in which Brian's body was found, testimony from others as to Mary's penchant for choking other children, and one other bit of evidence was uncovered. Mary's newsbook in which she had noted the finding of Martin Brown in the abandoned building. The drawing that accompanied her entry that day showed Martin lying in the same position his body had been found, with pills lying nearby with the word tablet written above them. Some pill bottles had been found near the body, but this was never revealed to any media sources and so had not been made public. She even drew a picture of a workman standing over the body. The boys who had found Martin did call to the electricians who were present near the building that day, but only the witnesses who found the body, or who had been there that day, would know that. Doctors had examined both Mary and Norma over the months before the trial. While Norma presented as much younger than her 13 years, and with little understanding of what was happening or why she could not go home, Mary showed a surprising calmness and maturity when questioned. She still declared her innocence and would not be swayed from her testimony that it was Norma who had committed murder, not her. The child psychologist who testified as to Mary's mental state during the trial offered a few glimpses into a child whom he observed had a complete lack of feeling or remorse that a young child had died. She told the doctors that, quote, death was so final and murder so common that it didn't matter anymore, and that Brian Howe had no mother, so he wouldn't be missed. He was being raised by his father and his older sister. The doctor stated that he'd seen a lot of psychopathic children, but never one like Mary, as intelligent, as manipulative, or as dangerous. Mary, when asked what she thought would happen to her if she was found responsible for the deaths of the two boys, retorted, I've been put away twice and that's enough. I was a week in Seaham in the remand home and then two days in Croydon. I've had enough punishment. The trial lasted nine days. Mary and Norma continued to blame each other. Many authorities thought that a trial was inappropriate due to the ages and maturity of the defendants. The BBC and the ITN networks banned the story from their news bulletins, believing that broadcasting it was unfair and unseemly since they were but children. One concession made during the trial was that the lawyers were asked to sit, not stand, for the duration of the trial next to their defendants. 
They felt it might be too intimidating for them to leave the children at the table alone and unsupported. Norma and Mary both took the stand for cross-examination. Their testimony is fascinating to read, but too lengthy to describe here. If you'd like to read it in its entirety, I recommend Gita Sereni's book, The Case of Mary Bell. Norma's testimony was somewhat confusing at times in that she would answer a question, but it often seemed she hadn't quite understood the question and was providing answers to what she thought was asked. Several times the prosecutor had to ask the question many times in different ways to get a coherent or complete answer. Mary, in contrast, was very clear in her answers, although she continued to use the same trick she had when first questioned by the investigators. She would answer with a yes and then quickly change it to a no or vice versa and then go off on a long winding tangent that seemed designed to take the questioner off track. The prosecutor several times became frustrated by this tactic. Only one time during the questioning did Mary become upset. It was at a point when she was being questioned about an incident where, it was alleged, she had been caught trying to strangle a pigeon and had been scolded. In fairness, the court was trying to ask questions of Mary to get truthful answers. Some would say that children this age live in a world of fantasy where truth and fiction often blend together, and that is surely somewhat true. Also, perhaps, we should take into account that Mary was raised by parents, her mother with her tall tales, half-truths, and lies, and her stepfather, who'd lie and say he was her uncle, who didn't provide a clear modeling of truth versus fiction, so might have been a little ambitious to expect truthful answers from this child. After nine days of testimony, examination, and cross-examination, the trial was concluded and the jury was sent out to deliberate. They announced their verdicts the next day. First, they asked for the verdict in the murder of Martin Brown. They were given two options, either murder or manslaughter. Norma was found not guilty of murder or manslaughter of Martin. Mary was then found guilty of manslaughter of Martin because of diminished responsibility. Then the verdict for Brian Howe was given. Not guilty of murder or manslaughter for Norma. Guilty of manslaughter because of diminished responsibility for Mary. Norma, found not guilty, was able to go home with her family. Mary, found guilty on two counts of manslaughter, was then sentenced. The judge said that he would like to impose a sentence where he could make a hospital order so she could be taken to a mental facility to receive appropriate treatment. Unfortunately, he could not do so since there were no facilities that provided this type of care for a person of her age. He also said that if she had been an adult, he would feel obligated to impose a life sentence because of the gravity of the offense and because he would feel the need to protect society from such a dangerous person. But in Mary's case, a prison sentence was not possible at this time due to her age, so he had no choice but to order a sentence of detention. Because he could not say with any confidence how long she might still be a danger to society, he must impose a sentence of detention for life. He further stated that this sentence could be considered from time to time to determine if it was still appropriate in the future. Mary, at first, was sent to the Red Bank School for Juveniles in Lancashire. Secure accommodations were set up to keep their ward slash prisoner. The community, while breathing a sigh of relief that their children were once again safe, still wanted to understand why this had happened. And over the years, many have taken up this question in the form of books, documentaries, and news features. Most people still felt sorry for Mary Bell, considering her a product, perhaps, of her dysfunctional environment and upbringing. While Mary's mother, Betty, had been mostly absent from her life, she became a frequent visitor to Red Bank and a thorn in the side to its administrators. 
It seemed that Betty had found a way to get the attention she constantly sought out. She was the mother of a notorious, i.e. famous, person. As such, she would take on the role of Mary's staunch defender. She was often found speaking out in television interviews, looking odd in a long blonde wig. She had always been raven-haired, but at the time of the trial and forever after that, she would present as a blonde. She would always minimize any problems she or the family may have had that would have contributed to Mary's behavior. Betty Bell herself gave a television interview in 1972, four years after the killings. She was by then a broken woman relying on drink and drugs for peace of mind. Now, Betty, are you saying that your daughter is innocent? No, I'm not saying she's innocent. But something must have made her do these things. Yes, something possibly must have made her do these things. What was it about her life and her family you think that could have driven her to these things? Maybe it's the arguments between my husband and myself might have had some inflict on her. I, I don't know. Have you been very despairing sometimes? And very despairing, very, very lot of, under a lot of strain, stress and grief for my daughter. I think the relationship between Mary and her mother was one of the key factors here, where there was really little or no emotional attachment at all. And I think this made the child really feel she had little or no emotional attachment to human beings around her. And therefore, nasty things could be done to them because it didn't mean anything. And yet, as the media began to dig deeper into the family's past, reports soon emerged that Betty was a well-known prostitute in Glasgow and even that she had a specialty. She was a dominatrix that provided violent sexual acts, or S&M, with her clients. It was also alleged that Betty would take Mary with her, and she perhaps witnessed this violence while very young. Whether it was witnessed sexual violence, frequent abandonment by her mother, being subjected to deadly, quote, accidents several times before the age of five, or some other cause, Mary at a very early age suffered a deficit in her psychological makeup. She could not abide real affection, but sought out attention through bad behavior, craved power over others, and took it by bullying and attacking other children whom she could overpower. She also had a blurred sense of truth and fiction and a marked lack of empathy for others. As to whether she could fully understand what death was, that people did not come back from death like in the cartoons, I believe that a girl of her age with her intelligence would most likely be well aware that death is final and permanent. Her statements to child psychologists also point to her understanding of this concept. She knew that Brian and Martin would never go home to their families, but she just didn't care. She was interested enough to seek out the families of her victims to see if they were upset or crying or missed their loved ones. There seemed to be no empathy or even that she experienced any sadness or remorse for the victims or their families. Mary spent 10 years at Red Bank School and then a remand home before being moved in 1978 to Ascombe Grange Open Prison. In 1980, at the age of 23, Mary was released from prison and given anonymity in the form of a new name. She had served a total of 12 years in custody. Four years after her release, she had a daughter. 
Her daughter did not know of Mary's past until reporters found her in 1998, and Mary and her daughter had to leave their home undercover and go back into hiding. Not much else is known about Mary Bell. If she became an upstanding citizen, if she had any other incidents of violence, due to the anonymity that was granted to her. We can only speculate. It, however, was reported in 2009 that Mary Bell became a grandmother. Thanks for listening to this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. To give feedback or suggest show topics, you can find me on Facebook at Once Upon a Crime Pod and on Twitter at Upon a Crime. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes or Stitcher and rate and comment if you like it. Until next time, be good to one another.